So open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 11. We're going through the book of Joshua. We are going to read the entire chapter. I don't know if we'll get through the entire chapter, but we may. We're going to read the entire chapter. Joshua chapter 11, verse number 1. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, had heard those things, that he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshap, and to the kings that were on the north of the mountains, and of the plains south of Chinnereth, and in the valley, and in the borders of Dor on the west, and to the Canaanite on the east and on the west, and to the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Jebusite in the mountains, and to the Hivite under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they went out, they and all their hosts with them, much people, even as the sand that is upon the seashore in multitude, with horses and chariots very many. And when all these kings were met together, they came and pitched together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Be not afraid of them, for tomorrow about this time will I deliver them up all slain before Israel. Thou shalt hawk their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua came and all the people of war with him against them by the waters of Miram suddenly, and they fell upon them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who smote them and chased them unto great Zidon and unto Mizrahmaim and unto the valley of Mizpah eastward. And they smote them until they left them none remaining. And Joshua did unto them as though the Lord bade him. He hawked their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua at that time turned back and took Hazor and smote the king thereof with the sword. For Hazor before time was the head of all those kingdoms. And they smote all the souls that were therein with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was not any left to breathe, and he burnt Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all the kings of them did Joshua take and smote them with the edge of the sword. And he utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. But as for the cities that stood still in their strength, Israel burned none of them save Hazor only. That did Joshua burn. And all the spoil of these cities and the cattle the children of Israel took for a prey unto themselves, but every man they smote with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, neither left they any to breathe. And as the Lord commanded Moses his servant, so did Moses command Joshua, and so did Joshua. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hills and all the south country, and all the land of Goshen, and the valley, and the plain, and the mountain of Israel, and the valley of the same, even from the mountain even from the Mount Halak that goeth up to Seir, even unto Belgad in the valley of Lebanon under Mount Hermon. And all their kings he took and smote them and slew them. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel save the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All other they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might destroy them utterly and that they might have no favor but that he might destroy them as the Lord commanded Moses. And at that time came Joshua and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debor, from Anab, and from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua destroyed them utterly with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the children of Israel. Only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdod that there remained. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto Israel, 
according to their divisions by their tribes, and the land rested from war. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that this is Your Word, and we ask for Your your blessing on it today. We ask that You would give us insight. We know that it is powerful, and just reveal that to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, uh, last week we looked at chapter 10, which was Israel spreading their campaign to the southern part of Canaan. And they took all of that southern part of Canaan. They had the, the previous chapters to that we had looked at. They were really pretty much confined to the central part of Canaan with Ai and, and Jericho and some of those cities. And then chapter 11... They're moving their efforts to the north. And as you may have noticed there, when we got to verse 16, there's a summary. And, you know, this pretty much completes the, the taking of the land for the most part. The, a good portion of the remainder of the book will be devoted to distributing the land and Joshua's final instructions for them as they live in the land. So chapter 11 begins with the, the moving of the battle towards the north. We see in verse 1 that Jabin says, But Jabin, king of Hazor, had heard these things. And, you know, the question is, what did he hear? Did he hear simply the accounts of the, the destroying of the cities in the south? Or, or did he hear what we see in chapter 10, verse 42? It says, And all these kings and their land did Joshua take at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. You know, a lot of people have selective hearing. They hear what they want to hear. Um, you know, he may have been told several different accounts of what had what had taken place in the south, but he had chosen to focus on the people instead of on the Lord. Many people hear hear the same story, and you know they hear it differently. You know, they listen to the same thing, but it's it's told differently. We know that there's the account in, in the book of Numbers when, when the children of Israel had received the report from the twelve spies. And some people heard that there were giants in the land and that the land was inhabited and that there were a lot of people and that the odds were against them and that it was insurmountable. And that's what they heard. And not all twelve spies had the same report. Uh, they could have heard something different. They could have heard the report from Joshua and Caleb. They could have heard what the Lord wanted them to hear. But you know, we've got to be very careful because, you know, we we just we kind of extract what we want a lot of times from certain accounts. You know, someone might say there's something really good going on in that church, and it's kind of interesting how different people will recount that and immediately draw different conclusions. One might say the Lord is doing a great work in that church, and the other may say Pastor so-and-so is doing a great work in that church. And there's a difference. You know, we, we need to make sure that we give the credit to the Lord. And again, we have there in chapter 10, verse 42, it's overly emphasized in chapter 10 that the Lord was the one who had fought for Israel, and that was really what should have been, you know, that's what should have been recognized by those that Israel was coming against. I remember Pastor Surly, when pastor of the church that I used to go to, you know, he was he was explaining to the deacons one time there was a couple in the church that were having marital trouble, and he was explaining to us how that you know he was basically at the end of his 
He didn't know what else to do. He said that the last meeting that he had, he had had with this couple, the, the husband had said, can't we just leave the Bible out of it? <laughs> and what do you do? I mean, if that's your attitude, you know, as a, as a pastor trying to offer counsel, what, what, what else there is left? I mean, that, that's, that does seem like a pretty hopeless case. But, you know, that person had selective hearing. You know, they didn't want to hear what the Bible had to say. Well, Hazor was the largest city in the north. Several commentaries referred to it as the New York City of Canaan. I don't know, maybe in comparison on some sort of a scale it would have been. It was certainly, no, it was, you know, the superpower. We see that references to that in verses 10 and 11. And so, you know, maybe that was all part of this strategy. They had gone through the central part of Canaan and had gone to the south and had built up their confidence and and seen the Lord work and, and trusted in Him. And so now they turn their attention to the north. And, you know, and so now they've got the most difficult battle ahead. It, seemingly, you know, humanly speaking, the most difficult battle. But Hazor was certainly, uh, you know, a large city. And like the south, you know, like we saw at the beginning of chapter 10, this, the northern cities have the same strategy. They decide that their best chance of survival is to unite against Israel. And so that's what, that's what happens. The word goes out from Jabin, who is kind of the recognized leader of all of these areas, all of these groups of people. And he summons everybody to, to gather together. And you know, they're, they're desperate. I mean, they know that this is, their, their end is near. And you know, it's interesting in Luke 23, 23:12, it says Pilate and Herod, Herod became friends against Jesus, but before were bitter enemies. And you know, that's what happens a lot of times. You know, those in the world that can't get along, they can get along when it when it comes to uniting against God and His and you know His agenda. And that's what they do. They set their differences aside. They decide that they're going to work together. And so that's what they do. They they come down and and you know, kind of get ready to engage the battle with Israel. They come down to the to the Sea of Chinnereth, and we know in the New Testament that's the Sea of Galilee. Chinnereth means harp, because the Sea of Galilee is in the shape of a harp. And so that's what they do. All the unconquered peoples that are yet that are still yet unconquered, they're going to unite against the the advance of Israel. And in verse number four, we see that this is a large contingent. Don't miss the description in verse number four. I mean, it just goes, you know, it just goes out of its way to, to, to let you see just how, how many people there were and just how much it seems like the, the odds were, were against the Israelites. You know, you, you see there that, uh, it says all their hosts, much people as the sand of the sea, multitude, many, I mean, it just, it's, you know, that's intentional. It's to let us know how powerful God is. It's to let us see that this was a, humanly speaking, this was quite an opponent. And it's just going to bring all the much glory to God when we, you know, when we see that they're, they're, they're given the victory over this by the Lord. It says that they had horses and chariots. Now, this is the first mention we have of chariots. This was state-of-the-art technology. This was, you know, the, the, the biggest and the, the latest, greatest thing at that time. It's probably somewhat kind of silly and laughable, you know, to a guy like Nate, you know, who's flying around in jets, you know, and, and Matt Hargis and some of these guys in the military. But this was it. I mean, this was, this was the latest. And, you know, it was considered superior. It was, you know, 
humanly speaking, supposed to give them the advantage, to give them the, the edge. This was the, the kind of the end of the Bronze Age. This was the beginning of the Iron Age. And so, you know, they, a lot of the world at that time hadn't yet developed this type of weaponry. But so, you know, the Canaanites were ahead. This might have been cause for intimidation by some of the Israelites. Secular history records that the Canaanites had 20,000 chariots. And sometimes they did provide great advantages. Um, saddles hadn't been invented yet. Um, you know, we, we don't really think a whole lot about that, but stirrups, which are a, you know, a main component of a saddle, they give the, the warrior the stability to more accurately launch arrows and swing a sword and do all of those things. I'm not an avid horse rider or horse rider, but I just, uh, you know, from what I read, um, you know, saddles hadn't been invented yet. And so chariots gave soldiers a stable platform from which to launch, uh, you know, their arrows and, and to just be a little bit more accurate. And horses weren't nearly as large then as they are now. Um, a lot of the breeding that has taken place over the last several thousand years has has increased greatly the size of horses. So it would have taken many more horses to have pulled a chariot at that time than it would have today. Uh, turn to Judges chapter 1, verse 19. We'll get a little bit of insight here. Uh, the Bible just tells us the, the, affected, the effectiveness and the ineffectiveness of these chariots. Judges chapter 1, verse 19. It says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, because they had chariots of iron. Now, understandably, in the mountainous terrain of, of uh, many parts of the promised land, Canaan, it would have been difficult, if not impossible, to have a chariot be pulled by horses. Um, you know, but in the plains and in the valley, they were very effective. And that's, you know, what we see here in, in verse number 19. Uh, kind of an interesting side note here about 19. It was interesting when I was doing some research on this verse, some had actually somehow come to the conclusion that the Lord was the one who wasn't able to drive out the inhabitants of the valley. If you look at that verse again, it says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he... Some people seem to be a little bit confused about who he is referring to. He is referring to Judah, not the Lord. Just about every other translation besides the King James Version has the word they to, to make it a little bit more clear who's being referred to there. Not that there's anything wrong with the King James. If you jump back down to verses 10 and 11 in that same chapter, notice it says, And Judah went out against the Canaanites that dwell in Hebron, and then down in verse 11, it says, From thence he went against the inhabitants of Deborah. It refers to Judah again as he. There's no inconsistency there. There's nothing ambiguous about that. And so, you know, to jump to the erroneous conclusion in verse number 19 that somehow the Lord was the one who wasn't able to drive out the inhabitants, that's, that's just unfounded. That's, that's silliness. But anyway, back to the point, the, the chariots... You know, they were, they were going to be very limited. I mean, they were not all-terrain vehicles. You know, they were going to break down if, if they were in the rocky areas of the, of the mountains. You know, and when they did, they were useless. You know, you weren't going to call 511 or motorist assist or anything like that. I mean, that, that would have been silly. I remember years ago when 
I, I invited Pat Campbell along to go on a, on a fishing trip that we that, that we go on periodically to Montana, and, and we go way up in the mountains, about a six or seven mile hike, and it's very rocky, and you have to climb over, you know, cross fast moving streams and and you know log jams and climb you know climb over rocks and all kinds of stuff. And Pat says, "Can I take my bike?" You know, he's an avid mountain biker. Well, I'm not a I'm not a mountain biker. I was trying to explain to him, you know, what the situation was. But, you know, if you want to take your bike, take your bike. So he loaded up his bike on top of the van, and we drove over a 1,000 miles and got there. And, you know, his plan was that he was going to go up the – he was going to go up with the, with the rest – with the regular group the first day, and then we would go six or seven miles and make camp. And then the next day he would come down, and he would get his bike and come back up and meet us. And I remember as we were going up the mountain, we got about a mile or two up, and Pat says, I'm never going to use my bike. Because it, it would just, the, it would have been ineffective. You know, the, the, the type of, you know, area that we were in, there was just no way. It, it, you know, he would have ended up carrying that bike most of the time. So it just didn't make a lot of sense. Well, that's the same thing here with these chariots. They have their place. But, you know, in a lot of areas of Israel, they just weren't going to be effective. And... You know, uh, a a horse carrying a single soldier would have been easily be able to, you know, would have easily been able to overtake a horse pulling a chariot. So, you know, even if even if horses had been used, you know, there there were still limitations to, you know, how effective they were going to be. Turn back to Exodus chapter 14. And again, as I should have mentioned earlier, uh, you know, if you have a, a comment or, or you want to contribute something, just raise your hand. Don't hesitate. Exodus chapter 14. The Israelites had already seen that God destroys the, the chariots and the horses. They were not, they should not have been intimidated by this. Many of them would have heard about these stories. Exodus chapter 14, verse 26. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the sea, and the waters may come up again upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And that's exactly what happened. Look at Exodus chapter 15, verse 19. For the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. And Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. And that's what God is doing consistently. He is bringing the focus onto himself, magnifying his own name, letting them see that he is the one that is sustaining them. He is the one that is providing the victory. They're not to rely on this type of thing. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 20. And not that there was anything wrong with chariots and horses. God's just making the point that he wants, he wants it to be crystal clear that he's the one that's delivering the victory, not the superior technology that would have been available. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 1, verses 1 through 4. When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be, when ye are come nigh unto the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people, and shall say unto them, 
Hear, O Israel, ye approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint. Fear not, and do not tremble. Neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. That was the, that was the message that was supposed to be clear. They were to be the ones that were confident. Not because they had the superior technology, but because they had the Lord on their side. Turn to Psalm chapter 20. Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. Again, all of this detail is given to us to make it, to make the situation seem like it was overwhelming. To make it seem like Israel had no chance. Because without God, they didn't have any chance. That's why we had all the description about how, you know, how many their enemy numbered. Psalm chapter 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Turn to Psalm chapter 33. You know, what do we trust in today? Our bank account? Our military? Psalm 33, verses 12 through 22. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom He hath chosen for His own inheritance. The Lord looketh from heaven. He beholdeth all the sons of men. From the place of His habitation, He looketh upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashioneth their hearts alike. He considereth all their works. There is no king saved by the multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us as we hope in thee. And we may have the greatest military in the world, and we do. But that doesn't, that's not going to prevent God from judging us. That's not going to prevent the consequences of failing to trust in Him. If, if you turn back to Joshua, you know, that's really the point there in Joshua chapter 10. Again, you know, we keep, I keep repeating it, but it's worth repeating in Joshua 10.42. God wants you to get that. It was the Lord that fought for Israel. It wasn't their superiority, it wasn't the technology that they had, it wasn't the weaponry that they had, it was the Lord that fought for them. And you know, in our country, it's very discouraging to see the way we we approach our, you know, the way that that we approach our interaction with the rest of the world. Our attitude is that if we spend trillions on our defense, that somehow that's going to save us. And it's not. It's not. We've got to trust in the Lord. He will fight those battles for us. We won't have to spend trillions of dollars and be drowning in a sea of red ink if we would trust the Lord. It doesn't matter how much money we spend. It doesn't matter how much more superior our technology is. That's, that's the message that, that God has for us. And we just, you know, as a nation, we just refuse to want to receive that message. We just think that if we can come up with the, the greater technology and, and better technology and spend more money, that somehow that's going to 
That's how, that's somehow that's going to save us. And it, it's, that's not, that's not what God wants us to get. Now in verse, turn back to, to Joshua 11 if you're not already there. So these, these groups come against Israel. They, again, they're united. They come down and they're at the waters of Miram. They are set to advance the, or they're set to block the advance of Israel. And again, in verse number six, God reassures them. Again, the, the odds are stacked against them, very, seemingly stacked against them, very intentional. You know, all that imagery we're given there in verse number four, it's supposed to look like it's just overwhelming odds that they have no chance because again, it, without the Lord, they don't have a chance. But God is going to deliver them and He gives them that reassurance in verse number six. He promises Joshua victory again. And again, He had promised this I don't even know how many times we've seen God promise Joshua the victory up through chapter 11, but He just keeps doing that. And I just keep coming back to the same thing that I need to remember in my life. I need to keep reading God's Word. I can, I can approach God's Word with the attitude, why do I need to read that? I've already read that. I don't have it memorized. I need to be reminded of it so that it remains fresh in my mind. I need that reassurance. I need to know that God has... You know, that God is going to sustain us, that He is going to see us through. Even if I've already read those things, it's nice to see that reassurance. Here in verse number six, God says, basically, consider them dead men. That's what He says. I will deliver them up about this time. I will deliver them up all slain before Israel. Israel was not supposed to be intimidated by this superior weaponry. You know, it was it was no match for God, and God gives them instructions just to make it perfectly clear how that the the that they were not to rely on this technology. Look what God tells them to do to it in verse number six: hawk their horses, hamstring their horses. That means cut the tendon on the hind leg above the ankle, so the horse's effect you know is essentially crippled. It's it's worthless as far as any military advantage. And He says, burn the chariots. Now we saw there in verse. In Judges chapter 1 verse 19 that it that said that they had chariots of iron, but you know, everything that I read said that, that, that these chariots were still almost entirely wooden. You know, there was, it would be similar to like, you know, when we had our covered wagons back in the 18th, or in the 19th century, you know, the main wheel would have been wooden even though there would have been a band of iron wrapped around it. And that's why we have here the instructions to burn the chariots. They were still essentially for the most part just a lot of wood. And God says destroy them. He didn't want their attitude to be, well, you know, if we can get this stuff, you know, we'll be better than the Canaanites. God's attitude, He wanted their attitude to be, you're already better than the Canaanites because you have me. You have me on your side. He doesn't want them to rely on this technology and think that somehow that's, that's what's going to bring them through. That's what's going to sustain them. That's why he's, He orders it destroys. And you know, if there's something in our life that God thinks we're relying too heavily on, that may be His attitude towards that. There may be nothing wrong in and of it itself, but He may that may be God's plan that we get rid of it so that we're not relying on it instead of Him. Verse number seven, we see that Joshua demonstrates his faith. He engages the battle immediately. Notice there that word in verse seven, suddenly. You know, uh, Joshua understands that his faith has to be translated into action. I like the way Dale Ralph Davis puts it. Divine sovereignty does not negate human activity. He still had to get, you know, he still had to do things. 
You know, when you read the book of Ruth and you see in chapter 1 that Ruth says to Naomi, your God shall be my God, what is the very next thing she does? She goes out and starts gathering corn in the field. Her attitude wasn't, well, now your God's my God, so I can sit back and do nothing and take it easy and somehow the corn's just going to fall into my lap. That wasn't her attitude. You know, I listen to all these financial seminars. I sometimes have to. You know, they put these things on at work, and they, you know, they want to convince you that you need to hoard and and you know save every penny that you have. And they try to convince you that you need ten million dollars for retirement. You know, and all these types of things. And I sit there and I say to myself, Am I going to believe them or am I going to believe the Bible? You know, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes eleven one that I'm supposed to cast my bread upon the water and it'll return unto me. It says in Proverbs eleven twenty five that. He that waters will be watered. That's in stark contrast to a lot of the advice that we get from the world. So, you know, the question is, who are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to the Lord or are you going to listen to the world? Turn to Isaiah chapter 31. Isaiah chapter 31. You know, one of the things I, I certainly could identify with was as I was reading the, the commentary by Dale Ralph Davis was he says, you know, it's very difficult for us, even as believers, to make the distinction between whether or not we're trusting in ourselves or whether or not we're trusting the Lord, whether or not we're trusting the flesh or whether or not we're trusting the Lord. And I, and I do understand that because, you know, as we just, as I just said, you know, as we see from, from Joshua chapter 11, God had promised Joshua the victory, and yet Joshua was supposed to take action. He still had to, to, to follow the instructions that the Lord had given to him. And so, you know, how do we always make the distinction? How do we know what the difference is? How do we know when we're trusting the Lord and when we're trusting ourselves? Well, I think Isaiah 31, verses 1 through 3, give us certainly some red flags that we, we can look for in our life. It says, at that same time, saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families? I'm in the wrong book. I'm in Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 31. It says, woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. Egypt representing the world. Or anyone besides God. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Red flag number one, if, you, if you're wondering, if I'm wondering whether or not what I'm doing is trusting in the flesh or trusting in the Lord, I've even, have I even sought the Lord? I haven't even looked to Him. I haven't even prayed to Him and asked Him to give me wisdom about whatever it is I'm needing to decide. Verse number 2. Yet He also is wise and will bring evil and will not call back His words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the help of them that work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. Red flag number two. Am I putting more stock in what men have to say? Do I 
covet the advice of men more than I covet the advice of God? Do I look to God's Word for the answer and solution to my problem? Or do I look to my financial advisor or whomever you want to fill in that blank? Men. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. And their horses flesh and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out His hand, both he that helpeth shall fall, and he that is holpen or helped shall fall down, and they all shall fall together. Turn back to Psalm 121. Psalm 121. Very familiar psalm to a lot of you, I'm sure. Psalm 121, verse 1, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. Not government. The Lord. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. How many times do we lose sleep over things that we are worried about that we should turn over to the Lord? Verse number 5. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. Not a superior military. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Turn back to Joshua chapter 11. Verse number 5 says that they gathered together to come against Israel at the waters of Merom. And it says to fight against Israel. But some believe that what they really intended to do was to drive Israel back and really take the battle south. South of the Sea of Galilee to the to the Jordan Rift, to the place where there were a lot more plains, because that's where the chariots would have been been much more effective. That's a lot of people see here in verse number 7 when it says Joshua came at them suddenly. A lot of people see really a lot of ingenuity on Joshua's part. In other words, you know, whether they're reading into it or not, but the idea there is that Joshua understands that up here by the waters of Mir and those chariots are very ineffective because it's a very mountainous territory. And so Joshua is preventing them from moving further south where those chariots would have been much more effective. You know, whether or not that's the case, I don't know. But, um, you know, I thought that was worth mentioning because a lot of people are really making the point there that, again, even though Joshua was you know, very much obedient to the Lord and very much relied on the Lord, he also put his brain to work. Uh, he just, you know, did his part. I mean, he, he provided the leadership that he was supposed to. And, you know, they really recognized him as a very capable war general. Verse number 8 says, And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who smote them and chased them, God delivered the victory that He had promised. Uh, there at the end of the verse it says, until they left none remaining. Now we kind of looked at this last week. I think it bears repeating. Um, 
there are going to be many times throughout the book of Joshua and when you get into the book of Judges where there's a seeming contradiction. The Bible tells us repeatedly that they left none remaining, that they destroyed all that breathed. And yet, not too much later on, we're told that there are people in those same lands that are still pockets of resistance. And and again, I, I don't see any contradiction there, you know. Actually, if you go down to verse number 11, it says, and they smote all the souls that were therein. Many times when when they were going up against in battle against some of these cities or these groups of people, they would drive them out. Some of them would flee. So when the Bible says that they destroyed all that were therein, there, there's not, there's no contradiction there. They did destroy everyone that was there. But as soon as then they would retreat or ease up, or let up, then the people would return. Those that had fled and, and you know, crossed the borders and fled to the mountains of Lebanon and went down to Egypt, they would come back. And so it's, it's not a contradiction that later on, particularly in the book, book of Judges, because it does seem like a, a, a real dilemma. You know, you get to the book of Judges and you see that, you know, these people that they didn't destroy, and yet you're thinking, now wait a minute, there's a contradiction there. I just got done reading in Joshua how that those people were destroyed. But... Again, those people, you know, a lot of them return. I look at it as as the same battle that I have with thistles. I go out and spray my thistles, and I think I have every one of them. And then I look out a month later, and I'm like, what? You know, I'm sure Larry wishes that he could spray his fields once and then never have to spray them again, you know, never have to put down herbicides or pesticides or anything. But that stuff just keeps coming back. And that's the way it is with these groups of people. They just keep coming back. But there's nothing inaccurate about the text. There's nothing contradictory about the text. Verse number 9 says, And Joshua did to them as the Lord bade him. He hocked their horses and burnt their chariots with fire. Obedience is always the best solution. It's hard to find a better example other than the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible of obedience than Joshua. You just see over and over and over in the book it says God told him to do something and he did it. He just did it. When you do that, you acknowledge the Lord as the great provider. There would have been people who I'm sure would have had the attitude, we could use these horses. We could use these chariots. We could train ourselves to make real effective use out of these things. But God said to destroy them, so Joshua destroys them. You know, God tells us to do those types of things, and we we start to try to use our logic and our rationale and I you know I could say well you know I could sure use my tithe money and my missions money to do x y and z that's that's just that's a that's disobedience that's that's the that's the opposite of the example that Joshua is setting we're not to think like that we are to be obedient to the lord Verse number 10, Joshua ensures that the king is punished. He's destroyed. He's the recognized ruler of all of these powers. He's the one that's put this coalition together. Again, we've seen several times throughout the book, Joshua cuts off the leadership. He makes sure that the kings are destroyed because he doesn't want there to be an opportunity for these people to regroup and rally around their their leadership. In verse number 11, again, in obedience to God, everything is destroyed. The city is burned. 
Not every city is burned. We see that in verse 13. Notice in verse 13 it says, But as for these cities that stood still in their strength, Israel burned none of them. And, you know, that really is kind of consistent with uh, Joshua 24.13. The Bible says, God says to the Israelites, this is Joshua's farewell address, and he's explaining to the people that God has said to them. He says, I have given you cities which you built not. Well, it's kind of hard to see how any... You know, how the, the cities that God had given them would have really been considered much of a gift if every one of them had been destroyed with fire. But we're not told that every one of them was destroyed with fire. We're actually told that some of them weren't. You know, Jericho was destroyed with fire. Ai was destroyed with fire. Hazor is destroyed with fire. But, you know, it's reasonable to conclude that many of the cities weren't destroyed with fire and were actually given as possessions for the Israelites to, to dwell in and to jo- and enjoy. There's no prohibition against living in a house of a Canaanite. You know, God made it clear when they got into the land, they were supposed to tear down every idol that existed, make sure those things were destroyed, anything that would lead to idolatry. But not everything had to, not, not every city had to be destroyed. So this, this total destruction of the, of the people that we see in verses 14 and 15, this not only fulfills God's command, but it also fulfills fulfills Moses' command. And Joshua had, you know, received his instructions twofold. He had received them from God, but he had also received them from Moses. And you could go back, there's a, uh, numerous verses in which Joshua had given, or Moses had given instructions to Joshua on what to do. Just to, to drive home the point and to just let it be absolutely clear what his responsibilities were once they got into the, the promised land. So we don't want to read in that there are you know, we don't want to detect that there is any disobedience by, you know, the mention, the fact that, that uh, not all of these cities were destroyed. And then in verse number 14, they were, they were allowed to spoil. This, was, this had been commonplace. Uh, you know, again, we, we keep, uh, I, the, the thing that, when I read verses like this, the thing that keeps coming to my mind is, you know, what a waste for Achan. You know, he just was impatient. You know, he took what he wasn't supposed to from one of them very early confrontations and we just don't even know how much more he could have had if he would have simply waited and and taken things with in you know according to God's timing in verse number 15 it's clear that Joshua followed the commands of the Lord very strictly and these were not easy commands to obey most of us would have pretty it'd be pretty difficult to listen to commands to annihilate a people. Completely just wipe them off the face of the earth. Those wouldn't be easy commands to carry out. And I I think that's the point here. I think that's why we have verse 15. Because, you know, we're being told that Joshua is being faithful to the Lord entirely, strictly, even though this, this, these were not easy instructions. First John 2, 3. And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. John eight twenty nine. Jesus said, I always do those things that please Him, my Father. So Joshua, Joshua understands that. He knows that obedience to the Lord makes Him a great ruler. Not the number of horses that He, have, not, that he has. Not the number of chariots that He has. It's obedience to the Lord that makes him a, a model leader. I, I like the way, again, that, that Dale Ralph Davis puts it. Joshua does not make the laws, he obeys the laws. 
And of course, you know, that, that kind of, you know, hits a little sore spot with a lot of us, you know, in our particular, you know, in our country. It seems like we have a, a trend today where, you know, there's a lot of debate about the judicial system, whether or not it's enforcing the laws or whether or not it's making the laws. And we get very frustrated. We bring things to the poll and we just, we decide this and we vote on that and we, and then it's overturned, you know, and it's very frustrating. Joshua didn't make the laws. He kept the laws. He didn't decide, you know, the Lord's being pretty unreasonable about all this, like Saul did. Saul said, oh, I'll just amend the Lord's instructions. I'll just kind of do my own thing. I'll, you know, I'll decide what is best instead of having the Lord decide what is best. Joshua didn't do that. So, again, what a great example to us. What a great testimony. All right, we're not going to be able to get the chapter completed. I'm going to stop there, but uh, we do have a few minutes. Anybody have any comments or questions that they want to contribute? Steve? Right. Right, Judges chapter 3. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's what the Lord said in Judges chapter 3. I've left these people there to test you, to prove you. Anyone else? Yes, Dave. Yeah, he's over 90 now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the thoughts that I've that I've had several times, you know, I know Pastor has made the comment many times, you know, that a lot of people don't finish strong. You know, they get older and their resistance wanes and they But you don't see that with Joshua. I mean, you know, we're not giving the whole details of his last twenty years, you know, we'll jump real quickly from from him at age 90 to age 110 by the, to, by the time we get to the end of the book. But there's certainly, you know, when he gives those farewell addresses in chapters 22, 23, and 24, you don't get the impression at all that he is any less, you know, enthusiastic about his relationship with the Lord at that time than he has been, you know, since we were introduced to him back in the book of Exodus when he was, you know, 40 years old. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, it seems that Solomon began to trust in horses and chariots. Rick.
Yeah. Well, we're going to stop there. You dismiss. We're out of time.